I'm Paul from Thirst Counselling and welcome to a Thirst Counsellor podcast, a series of blogs, readings and audio meanderings through the world of mental health and well-being. Hello and welcome to episode 15. This week we're going to be looking at addiction. Um, Throughout the week as I'm recording these episodes, uh, I'll be doing a number of segments looking at different aspects of addiction. And so I'll start off by saying that this is going to be quite a personal podcast for me, as not only will I be referring to work that I might have done with uh, clients or potential work that might be involving clients, but also I'm going to be reflecting on my own personal experiences of addiction. Um, Addiction touches a lot of people's lives in many, many different ways. And so with that in mind, I'd like people to uh, be mindful of their own personal experiences, uh, of family members that might have got in touch with addiction and might have been affected by addiction. Um, Although this podcast won't contain any profanity, it may contain uh, elements and the topic itself, and that can be quite distressing to hear. Um, So I would say from the outset that this isn't a podcast for younger listeners, and for adult listeners, I would ask you to um, take into consideration your own personal experiences of being touched by by addiction in whatever form it may have affected you. Psychology Today describes addiction as a condition in which a person engages in the use of substance or in a behaviour for which the rewarding effects provide a compelling incentive to repeatedly pursue the behaviour despite detrimental consequences. Addiction may involve the use of substances such as alcohol, inhalants, opioids, cocaine, nicotine and others, or behaviours such as gambling. There is scientific evidence that the addictive substances and behaviours share a key neurobiological feature. They intensely activate brain pathways of reward and reinforcements, many of which involve the neurotransmitter dopamine. Looking at some recent statistics around addiction and deaths caused by addiction, uh, predominantly the information is related to substance misuse and not alcohol. On the uh, ukat.co.uk website, which is the UK Addiction Treatment Centre's website, it states that the number of drug-related deaths in the UK is rising rapidly. According to a recent analysis, the UK spends over 10.7 billion euros annually on maintaining the drug situation, with 8% going to health-related services. Further on in the report, it states in 2015, the number of drug-related deaths in the UK was placed at 4,380, with Scotland accounting for 706 and Scotland, Wales accounting for 3,674 combined. 
In England, the percentage of drug-related deaths for every one million individuals in the population is broken down as follows. And considering that I'm in Yorkshire, in the Yorkshire and the Humber region, it's 52.5. Since 2012, the number of drug-related deaths, especially involving heroin and morphine, has doubled. This increase is due in part to the increase in the availability of the substances in recent years. I think we also need to take into consideration that there are a number of other forms of substances. We're not just talking about heroin. We're talking about pills. We're talking about new psychoactive substances. And also when we're, when we're thinking of addiction, you know, we haven't just got to limit ourselves to substances. We've got to think of alcohol and the impact that alcohol has on people's lives. And also gambling. Gambling plays a huge part in addiction. A lot of people's lives are completely traumatised by gambling. Their lives are torn apart. Families are torn apart. And when we look at the rise of online gambling, there's a, a huge amount of opportunity for people to become involved in gambling in a very simple and convenient way. Spring. So I grew up in the 1970s and 80s in a a town called Blackburn in Lancashire. I grew up on a council estate. My father was around, although my mother and father were divorced, so I was pretty much raised a single parent. And I guess the first indication of addiction I can think of now is smoking. Um, I started smoking about the age of 10 or 11. I used to steal cigarettes from my mum's packet, me and this other boy. Um, my best friend and the close friendship group that I had never knew that I smoked for a number of years. I hid it from them because I knew that it wasn't socially acceptable. Uh, I knew that it was wrong and it would make me sick. It would make me violently sick when I started smoking but I knew if I kept smoking and kept at it eventually I would stop being sick, which I did. So I started leading this double life from a very early age, hiding it from my best friends and associating with a lad who I knew um, snuck around smoking just like me. And around about the same time in the 80s, solvent abuse was really quite rife. Uh, On the council estate where I grew up, the the older boys who were always in trouble um, were sniffing glue openly and, you know, butane gas, you would see them on the parks just sat in the middle of the field with cans of glue and bags with butane gas in them. And we used to, me and this other boy used to find out where they'd thrown their empty cans of glue or where they stashed their glue before they went home and steal them. And we would get high. We would go somewhere quiet where no one would find us and we would get high. And, and again, I hid this from my close friendship group because I didn't want them to find out about it. Um, and my parents didn't know about it. I remember sneaking cans of gas and hiding in my bedroom and, and getting high in my room 
and I liked how it made me feel. I felt awkward and different most of the time um, when I got high off gas or, or off glue. I didn't really care how I felt, I just kind of felt numb. Um, and I was attracted to that. So from that early age, I, I, I recognise now that I was drawn to these risk-taking behaviours with little or no concern for my safety. Um, I was more concerned with not feeling inadequate and useless. Edgar Allan Poe once said, I have absolutely no pleasure in the stimulants in which I sometimes so madly indulge. It has not been in the pursuit of pleasure that I have paralleled life and reputation and reason. It has been the desperate attempt to escape from torturing memories from a sense of insupportable loneliness and a dread of some strange impending doom. Summer. I guess the summer for me, of my life, was round about 1989-1990. I was starting to go to the pubs uh, and I'd started drinking. I'd only drunk once before uh, when I was very young and I got really, really drunk after drinking a whole bottle of QC Sherry. Um, and I was so, so ill that I never really bothered drinking again. But when I got to 18, we started going to the pub, me and my best friend and a couple of other friends. We would have a couple of pints, but I never really liked the taste of, of beer, of lager. So later on, as we started going to nightclubs, we went to a particular nightclub called Saint La Vie, uh, where I started drinking shorts, so I would drink rum, rum and black or perno. And, and, and it was a great feeling and that again I could feel how I wanted to feel, which was giddy, like I didn't care, but I didn't have the horrible taste uh, of beer to worry about. So I would have one bottle of beer and several shorts. It was around about that time that me and my best friend got introduced to poppers. Uh, amyl nitrate um, we used to sneak off to the toilet sniffing poppers thinking it was really cool thinking we would be like Brett Easton Ellis in Lesson Zero but my best friend didn't like it didn't like how it made him feel but I did I loved that feeling that heady feeling um, my head buzzing um, again I was quite uh, attracted and excited by this and at around about the same time, again in the early 90s, when the, the rave scene was going strong and dance music was, was popular and was everywhere, I started hanging out with another group of people as well who went to these dance clubs. Uh, and there, that's where I was introduced to amphetamines and ecstasy. And so I, I remember starting to take ecstasy at the weekends, going to dance clubs. Uh, and getting speed, amphetamines and, and snorting that up in the toilet cubicles, three or four of us in the toilet cubicle with a razor blade cutting it up and again it was really quite exciting, it was, it was a whole kind of ritual of, of, of snorting you know, drugs up a 
£5 note or a £20 note. And again, this kind of idea in my head of, of being one of these disillusioned young people in New York, like in Brett Easton Ellis's seminal book, Lesson Zero, was fascinating to me. And then I was also going to another nightclub with um, my best friend, uh, where they played alternative music like The Cure uh, and The Mission and caught the unstoppable sex machine and I would just uh, take some speed with me and hide it from him and go to the toilet and, and take that and then again I was leading this double life I had two sets of friends one who I could openly do drugs with uh, and another group of friends who I would have to hide it from but again I, I really liked how they made me feel it made me feel like it didn't matter whether or not I could chat up a girl or whether or not I was uh, in control. I wasn't as self-conscious. And so this became a really attractive way and became quite normal, trying to balance these, these two lifestyles and these two groups of people um, for a while was, was okay and was a breeze. Um, but sooner or later... You know, things started to give, things started to crack, and things started to crumble. So I guess in the autumn of my addiction, I'd moved away from going to the clubs and partying and I was becoming a lot more of a, a solitary drug user. Um, I wasn't spending time with my best friend anymore to the point where he didn't really want to be around me because I became very unreliable and I would spend so much time trying to get my amphetamines and I was injecting regularly, several times a day. Um, and I wasn't going to the clubs anymore. And I, was, I would buy drugs and I would stay in the house, um, just going around, um, taking things apart, putting things back together again. And as a result of that, I was just massively unreliable. I, uh, I was using every day. I'd walked out of work just after my father had died. Um, I was injecting. And I was getting more and more into arrears with my flat. So I got kicked out. Um, and then became um, homeless for a number of weeks until I went into a hostel. Then I got kicked out of there. And then there was just these uh, increasing bouts of homelessness. Uh, I was associating with drug users, criminals. I was beginning shoplifting. I was doing whatever I could to to get a hit. I was eating in a soup kitchen, um, and I would just spend so many days awake until my body just collapsed and crashed out. Um, and then there would be periods of time when 
you know, when I slept on the streets and it just got increasingly more bleak. I was suddenly finding myself surrounded by people I didn't really know, but who were all doing what I was doing. So I had a level of acceptance there. There was no one who could find me out. There was less shame and guilt because the people I was associating with also were, were using uh, or drinking. And then this spiralled more. Um, I was getting arrested for shoplifting offences. And I was getting terrified. You know, and at this point, you know, I was beginning to wonder whether or not, you know, this was it. This was this was my life from now on. Um, but I don't think I was ready to to leave it yet. Carl Gustav Jung once said, Every form of addiction is bad, no matter whether the narcotic be alcohol, morphine or idealism. When I think about the winter of my addiction, I'm looking at the last few years, after years of injecting amphetamines, on a daily basis and passing out and sharing needles I'd eventually become so anxious and so paranoid and so insecure that I was spending the whole day locked inside and going out at three o'clock in the mornings. I eventually went on to heroin and used heroin as prol prolifically as I was using amphetamines. And it was just to try and get some kind of sanity. And it was frightening, you know, that I'd suddenly turned into this junkie, this smackhead, this skaghead, shoplifting, very poor at it, shooting up in toilets, using the water out of toilet bowls. I didn't know how I got in, I didn't know how to get out. I was eating in soup kitchens and you know, trying to get you know, a tenner together by begging or meeting up with other drug addicts. I was homeless, I was sleeping on the streets and it was a frightening existence. I remember thinking back to, you know, when I'd been a schoolboy, when I'd been a teenager and my world was always going to be something different. I was going to be a, an author. Um, I was, you know, going to start a family and instead I was a 29-year-old heroin addict on the streets of Blackburn who did not know how to exist that life. It's very fortunate soup kitchen that I went to uh, had a drug rehab and it was when I was at my lowest ebb when I was really scared and really frightened didn't know who to turn to the Catholic priest that worked there held out a hand and I asked for help 
People are afraid to merge on the freeways in Los Angeles. This is the first thing I hear when I come back to the city. Blair picks me up from LAX and mutters this under her breath as a car drives up the on-ramp. She says, people are afraid to merge on the freeways in Los Angeles. All this sentence shouldn't bother me, it stays in my mind for an uncomfortably long time. Nothing else seems to matter. Not the fact that I'm 18 and it's December, and the ride on the plane had been rough and the couple from Santa Barbara was sitting across from me in first class had gotten pretty drunk. Not the mud that had splattered on the leg of my jeans, which felt kind of cold and loose, earlier that day at an airport in New Hampshire. Not the stain on the arm of the wrinkled damp shirt I wear, a shirt which had looked fresh and clean this morning. Not the tear on the neck of my grey argyle vest, which seemed vaguely more eastern than before, especially next to Blair's clean tight jeans and a pale blue t-shirt. All of this seems irrelevant next to that one sentence. It seems easier to hear that people are afraid to merge rather than I'm pretty sure Muriel is anorexic or the singer on the radio is crying about magnetic waves. Nothing else seems to matter to me but those ten words. That's the opening lines from the book by Brett Easton Ellis, Less Than Zero. A book which really kind of outlines a, a hedonistic set of values of the 80s book that I read when I was about 17 or 18. I was fascinated by it. This idea of these young people that were uh, all rich and powerful and, but yet disconnected from each other. The only connection they have with each other and that is through their mutual drug dealers or through their uh, mutual lack of respect for each other and their use of each other's bodies sexually. It was a book that really kind of changed my thinking um, and was quite a rite of passage for me. My best friend sees this book as one of the reasons why I started dabbling and eventually became embroiled in addiction. It highlighted uh, a lack of concern and a lack of respect for the self. It's a great book and it's a great read um, and it shows a real kind of dark, disconnected, um, dystopian youth which is something that I really resonated with when I was younger. It was later turned into a film with Andrew McCarthy, Robert Downey Jr. Uh, and was a, a great, great film, but quite different from the book. It's very bleak throughout. It's not an easy read. But I, I think it's well worth taking a visit to Brett Easton Ellis' novel um, to see the... The idea that people become so belligerent and so disassociated from each other. It's very reflective of how we are today as a society. Through social media today, we've become very disassociated and disconnected from one another. Yet at the same time, we're using all these platforms to in some way try and communicate and connect with people. Brett Easton Ellis' book... Lesson Zero is available on Picadoy. Information on addiction can be found on the NHS website where they talk about where you can begin to get help for people with substance misuse issues and the GP is a good place to start 
they can discuss your problems and and help you get into treatment um, they may offer you treatment at the practice or refer you to a local drug service obviously the website talk to frank is is one of the primary places where people can get information around substance misuse um, and there are a number of charities as well as the NHS. Charities and private drug and alcohol treatment organisations are available to help you. Uh, the ADFAM website has a list of useful organisations. And I'll put a link to the NHS website in the show notes. And it's remembering, you know, what, what drug and alcohol treatment involves. It might involve a form of medication. Um, but quite often when we're thinking about rehabilitation or when we're thinking about getting support and that there's a lot of talking therapies that are involved. And significantly what is used quite often is CBT, that's cognitive behavioural therapy. And that tends to be the, the go-to talking therapy to help people change their behaviour and change their thinking patterns around substance misuse. So what about recovery? What about sobriety? The reality is that there are options out there for people. There are people who attend support group meetings and sober up or clean up through the rooms. There are people who go through their GP, people who seek spiritual guidance and find God. There are people who go into residential rehabilitation programs what smart recovery programs through drug and alcohol agencies. There are opportunities out there. Let's not forget the families, the families who are so haunted by the addiction, whatever kind of addiction that that might be, whether it be gambling, whether it be sex, whether it be drugs or whether it be alcohol. There are organisations out there too to support families, such as Families Anonymous, such as Al-Anon. And again, I'll post links to these in the show notes. This has been quite a personal podcast, as I'm sure you can tell. Um, I recently celebrated 11 years of sobriety. And I haven't done that on my own. I've done that with the love and support of my family. Um, and with a, a new regimented approach to my life. What I realised when the substances were removed was that there was a hole inside. For me, addiction is about relationships. And addiction is the thing that stops people from having relationships, having a relationship with themselves and having a relationship with other people. And for some people that can go on for so long they can become so embroiled within their addiction and within that world that it creates that the fear of removing that, that emotional chemical crutch can be so terrifying. The idea of being laid so naked and so bare and to have to go out into the world and, and function uh, becomes an impossible ideal. And yet, with help and with support, the right kind of support, at the right time, it, it is possible. 
to learn to have that relationship, to learn to build that connection, that connectedness to other people and to, to yourself. I still find it very uncomfortable when people say, oh, you've done really well, you've done fantastic. All I've done is to try to live my life differently. And isn't that the best way to get on with life? If something isn't working in our lives, isn't it about trying to live our lives differently so that we can start to engage with a new way of living? I do hope people have got something out of this episode. Um, It's been interesting revisiting my past. It's a place I like to uh, look at. I don't spend a lot of time there. Um... And I also live a life now that is not full of regret and shame. Um, My past has got me to where I am today. Uh, A happier, more fulfilled person. You know, I am the end result of my experiences. So I hope any listener who has either experienced similar things or is currently going through similar things, or has a loved one who is going through similar things, that they may find something from this that helps them or informs them uh, in ways of moving forward. Thanks for listening. I built four walls, a roof and a floor, a cell of my own so I couldn't withdraw. I made it of bricks and also of stone. It was built just for one for me on my own. I woke up one day and found myself there, no memory of arrival, and I didn't really care. There aren't any doors or pictures to see, no mirrors inside, no reflection of me. But now I'm awake, alert and refreshed, wondering how I got in this great awful mess. And I'm picking away at the bricks and the stone, because I've got to break out of this cell on my own. And at last I will know what it will take me to be to be happy, to function, and at last to be free. The Cell. Poem that I wrote four days in treatment. And here we are at the outro. I'd like to thank everyone who's listened. Um, it's nice to see that there's people downloading it and listening to the to the podcast. Uh, uh, gives me a reason to kind of keep going. Uh, if you if you like what I'm saying or you have any ideas or any topics, you can in- email me at info at firstcounseling.co.uk, or alternatively, you can tweet me at t underscore counselling at t underscore counselling I'll be back uh, in another episode talking about some other aspects of mental health and well-being Uh, please feel free to review this on your podcast app and uh, give it a couple of stars Uh, and if you want to share it with other people and if you think other people might be interested please feel free to do that Um, thanks very much for listening sincerely yours a first counsellor So I guess the reason 
I chose to speak about ADHD is again because it's something that's quite personal to me. Over the years I've worked with a number of young people with ADHD. Young people who've received the diagnosis, who for a number of years have been getting into trouble in schools because of their behaviour, because of their lack of attention, because of their lack of ability to process the learning in a way that's um, convenient. And I've come across a couple of adults with ADHD too. And what's been interesting about that is there's been quite a, uh, a crossover between um, criminality, uh, between uh, addiction, um, and risk-taking behaviour and for me that's certainly a pattern that's been uh, recognised however one of the things that I know about ADHD for me is that it doesn't limit what I'm able to do it is just another facet of me it is something that I have learned and been able to um, utilise to my benefit I hope people have enjoyed this episode. Uh, please feel free to leave a comment uh, or visit the website. Um, and I'm sure I'll see you next week uh, with another episode of First Counselor Podcasts.